Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a first-time filmmaker's journey. I am your host, Josh Lindsay from the Movie Proposal Podcast. And with us is our first-time filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hello, Josh. Hello, Christian. Not with us today is ever reliable, except today, Jason Rugg. So he will be missed, but you know, yeah, sometimes Yeah, we missed you, Jason. Um, but we have a special guest, World War II veteran, crazy GI, George Champa. Thank you for being <laughs> with us again today, George. And uh, My name. We're, we want to conti continue to hear more about his story. But before we do that, let's get a film update. Christian, what do you got for us? Yeah, so uh, it has been an exciting couple of days here at the Girl Who Wore Freedom. Uh, we'd like to announce this is actually going out to our audience uh, before here, before anybody else. Unfortunately, it won't air till next Wednesday, but we have now released our film. Um, we released in Canada a few days ago, and so you can find our film at the Shaw Cable Company. Um, you can rent it for, I think, $6.99 Canadian dollars as well as the Cineplex store in Canada. So for our Canadian listeners, check us out there. Every penny you spend, we get 75, uh, well, every dollar you spend, we get $75 of that, hopefully, eventually sometime. And then uh, just yesterday, we launched our pre-sale on iTunes. So you could go to iTunes right now and find us there and actually rent or buy the film. And then on June 1st, the official release date in the United States, you'll be able to watch it. This is really important because what we've learned is that in the first 10 days, it is critically important for the iTunes algorithms um, if a lot of people watch the movie or you know rent or buy it and then rate it uh hopefully with five stars and then review it so if we can have a lot of people do that early on it will bump us up in the itunes algorithms so that more people will you know be introduced to our film and hopefully rent it um, so we're asking everybody that's involved with our film to do that to help us out um, and yeah, that's the most exciting news as far as the release goes. And then uh, also exciting, we just won, in case you didn't see, the Best Documentary Award and the Best First Time Filmmaker Award at the GI Film Festival last Ooh, week. All right. So woohoo, we're super excited about that. And then we've got uh, another film festival coming up on June 3rd. That's the Reedy Reels Film Festival in Greenville, South Carolina. It's at 10 a.m. Tickets are $10. So if you're in the area, come by and you can meet me and David Chapman and a whole bunch of other Girl of War Freedom team members. And then that happens at 10 a.m. on June 6th. And after that, we head down to Buford, California for Buford, California, Buford, South Carolina, <laughs> uh, uh, for a uh, a garden party D-Day celebration with the girl who wore freedom. So two opportunities to see us in person coming up on June 6th in Greenville and then in Buford, South Carolina. Uh, so lots of fun stuff. Um, we still have not announced publicly that Delta is carrying us. So we hope to do that in probably on June 8th. And, you know, hopefully by that time, a lot of people will have rented or bought The Girl Who Wore Freedom, reviewed us, and left us a five-star rating. So just recap, in, in, in regards to iTunes, when can you start pre-ordering? Yesterday. People can okay. start pre-ordering yesterday. 
Um, and I think that it's $4.99 to rent, $6.99 or $9.99 to buy a steal at any price. Hello. <laughs> so $9.99 to buy it. You can also gift people uh, you know, the film. So if you've seen the film, you love it, uh, please try to gift it to someone so they can watch it as well. You know, I remember when Spider-Man Homecoming came out on iTunes and you could rent it or buy it. And I think the difference in cost between renting and buying it was like three or four dollars. I thought, well, this is stupid. I'm just going to buy it. So if you're going to spend six dollars or whatever it is to rent, you might as well spend ten dollars to buy it. So I think that'd be the wise thing. Wise move I right agree, there. Josh. I agree. <laughs> Cool. All right. Well, very exciting stuff. And congratulations on yet another award uh, for the Girl of War Freedom. We're getting a little tired of hearing about all these awards, you know. You know yeah, well, I have old. to tell you, I am not tired of winning. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's very exciting. I'm, 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 if I were in your shoes, I'd be excited too. So that's a big deal. We've come a long way, baby. That's right. Well, speaking of coming a long way, we have our guest, George. What do they call you? Crazy GI. I think that's your nickname. About that, if you want. But uh, someone's getting a telephone call. It's not me. Uh, yeah, I think it's George. We good? But you, <laughs> you did. Uh, you did sort of freeze up there a little bit, Josh. At least on my screen. So basically, you were introducing George Champa, who apparently George tells us he's known as the crazy crazy GI. And I think today we're going to hear some of those crazy stories. Uh, but first, George, we need. We left off. Really, in the Henri uh, Chapelle Cemetery, you had, you know, told us you had buried over seventeen thousand GIs during the Battle of the Bulge, and then you moved out from there. Let's start the story from leaving that, you know, um, place. I guess it would be called where you were uh, bivouacked, right? Is if is that the right term? The what? Bivouacked. I've heard everybody. Yeah, that's the right term. Yeah. Not camped. Right. You you were bivouacked at the Henri Chapelle Cemetery. So then what happened when it was time to move out? Well, when we moved uh, uh we went into Germany and left the temporary Henri Chapelle Cemetery. There was 17,300 buried there on And I think I probably told you before that at the permanent cemetery, which was built two years later. All permanent cemeteries were built two years after the war in 1947. Uh, then uh, it became, instead of 17,300, uh, it uh, around 9,000. Uh, the reason for that is because the next of kin had the prerogative of having the remains sent home in caskets at any cemetery they wished and no charge to them, or left over there in permanent cemeteries buried remains buried in caskets and so when you look at pictures of cemeteries you've you got to think in terms of the number that are there now is only 40 percent of what was there okay that's important okay i think i talked to you before about the permanent cemeteries so you want me to talk about what happened then we went to uh, through Germany uh, with a, a few more temporary cemeteries, but went pr pretty quickly. Uh, the 
the front lines were moving pretty fast uh, uh, for a while. And, and that's after the Battle of the Bulge is when the front lines started moving. So in the Battle of the Bulge, just for just for our audience's understanding, it started December 16th. And what date did it officially end in January? About January 25th. 25th. So Battle of the Bulge ended on January 25th. The, of course, American and allies were victorious. And then what happened after we were, you're saying we were able to push in very quickly. And do you, was that battle as fierce or had we really broken the back of the German army? Yeah. The Battle of the Bulge was the turning point. Before that, it looked like almost the end of the war. That's the first day I had off in Paris, a big celebration. But then when, when the Germans broke through, which is called the Battle of the Bulge, uh, and I, I talked to you about that the last time we talked. So we moved through Germany pretty quickly to Eisenach, uh, which was 100 miles from Berlin. And Eisenach, we had a temporary cemetery there. And uh, the war ended, as you know, May 1945. And uh, of course, I was very happy about that celebrated with two bottles of wine, white and red. And then uh, our company was broken up in, into different platoons. So that's the last time I saw guys that I had served with during the war. Well, uh, can I ask you real quick? So if the Battle of the Bulge ended in January 26th and the war ended completely in May 8th, were you bivouacked in that one location for that whole time? Yeah, we, we left there, I believe it was in February. So February, March, and April, we were going through Germany with a few more temporary cemeteries and ending at Eisenach. At okay. Eisenach. So they had Memorial Day services at that cemetery. And the very next day, we had German prisoners digging graves to get to the remains of the soldiers buried there because they had to be identified, re-identified um, by looking at the dog tag that was nailed to the temporary cross and, uh, and also the uh, dog tag that was on the body. And then the, rem the remains, and they were pretty decomposed. It was not a good job at all to, to be involved in that, which we were. They were put in the boxes and shipped back to other temporary cemeteries uh, in, in Holland and Belgium, and I guess in France too, those three areas where they were buried in temporary cemeteries. So a lot of these, a lot of these guys that were buried temporarily were there for some time until they got put in caskets and, and buried in permanent cemeteries. And of course, there were permanent cemeteries in Belgium, two of them. Henri Chappelle was the biggest one. There's another cemetery in Holland. There's 8,300 buried there now, and there were more before. And then the other one in Luxembourg. So uh, those are all, all the temporary, temporary cemeteries in our area. And then, of course, in France and Italy, you had temporary cemeteries in those areas. And they were all put in permanent cemeteries in those areas. So are you telling me then your first job was just to put them in the ground That's without right. 
a casket. And then they were there for a while. Then they had to be reinterred and put into a casket and resent back. So that was the process, right? Yeah, that wasn't until 40, 1947, two years after the war ended, before the American Battle Monuments Commission could construct the new permanent cemeteries. Okay, yeah. so you mm -hmm. were only involved then in the initial burials just in the ground, correct? Right, right. After the war, we were not there. I was back home in 1946. And okay. So th that work was done by, by the citizens living in those areas, and they were paid to do that work, to disinter the temporary cemeteries, put the remains in caskets. So we, we never did that. That I was home. I was okay. home celebrating being home. <laughs> So I'm going to ask you an, an emotional uh, question. We've stayed a lot to the facts, but I remember back to our first podcast two ago, you started off telling your story by your four, first two experiences with death, your cousin, I think it was, and then your uh, grandfather maybe in the bay window. And then, so here you are 19 years old, you landed at D-Day on June 18. 18 I years old. They did turn 19 10 days later. And then you were doing these burials all the way through, I'm assuming, May 8th, if not longer. So tell me what that was like emotionally for you from the time that you learned you were going to be burying the dead all the way to, you know, what was that like as you progressed through the war? Well, I think I told you uh, before that it was very difficult for me. In fact, I broke down in France sh shortly after, about two weeks after D-Day, because it, it just got too horrific for me to handle it. And the, our lieutenant pulled out his 45 and stuck it in my ribs and said, you get your ass back out there. And so I did my work like a robot. And... Uh, I, I did not look at faces, but it was difficult not to. And, and it wasn't just faces because there were bodies in all, all shapes and forms. I mean, you know, <laughs> I think I mentioned to you one of the most grotesque things I saw was a tanker that had climbed out of his tank on a fire. And so there was just a ball of charcoal there next to the tank. And so there was no eyes to look at there. but. But other situations where limbs missing, and a lot of times guys had grotesque, grotesque looks on their faces. Some of them looked like a natural death. It was, it was just all conditions. We, we saw everything. And while I'm talking about that, the medics and grazer registration guys had it damn tough in seeing what the real price of freedom was. We know. I mean, I get chills right now think, thinking about the, the young guys that were killed. Never, many never even had a girlfriend. I didn't. Many didn't. I had plenty um, not opportunities. There were plenty of times that I know of that could have been killed. And I think I covered that before the first go around. Yeah. So I don't think you want me to go that, through that again. So let's start talking about what happened there uh, at the end of the war after we did our job there at that temporary cemetery and getting those bodies sent back to the other temporary cemeteries out of germany because 
the government didn't want any cemeteries left in Germany. I can understand but, that. Were you were you relieved? Was there a sense of 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 relief uh, when you heard the war was over? And how did you hear that? And what was that experience like? <laughs> you know what? I don't know how I heard it, and and I don't know how I was able to get my hands on some wine. I, you know, you don't remember all the details. It's it's crazy. You seem you to know. remember a lot. You know, I can't even remember the details about about bringing up my kids after their mother died for ten years. I, I can't even tell you. You know, some some guys can tell you every damn detail. I don't know how they do it, but I can't. All I know is that I I had two bottles of wine, a white and a red, and where I got it, I don't know. When we were there at Eisenach, we took over a little building there where the Hitler Jugend used to meet in this building. So we did get in a little building there, you know, at the end of the war for a short time. Uh, so we weren't sleeping on the ground. Uh, it, um, I think you want me to get into uh, what happened after I got transferred to Mannheim, Germany. Yeah, uh, so you, the few, war is over. What happened yeah, after that? War is over. So now I had been in the first army. Now I'm in a seventh army. In, in, the, in the army of occupation for seven months. Looking back on it, it's probably the best thing that happened to me because I hated the Germans, of course, and uh, I never thought what would happen to me happened. But what happened was I got put in a salvage collecting company. It's misnomer because it was a warehouse where all the companies that are going home now to the States had to turn in all their gear, including vehicles. The vehicles were at a yard across the road from us, but I handled everything else. I worked one day on off. I signed Captain Sabin's name. Believe it or not, I had a young German uh, that had been a soldier who was 18 or 19 years old working with me. Yeah. Wow. And he was he was a real Nazi kid. Wow. Uh, yeah. And I don't know why they gave him to me, but they did. Uh, a young, blonde German kid. So I worked there one day, on, one day on, one day off. But so what happened was, uh, like I said, it's probably the best thing that happened to me because I got a chance to chill out. I got a wait, chance to get away from the dead bodies where I was for eleven months. And now I threw caution to the wind when I was there. You ever hear that expression? I do hear that. You were still nineteen, right? You were still really young. I was still nineteen, and yeah, okay. a month later I turned twenty. But this is in May now, June, I turned 20. So here I am uh, going to this circus that the Army Special Services put on for the GIs. And a real the, circus? I mean, are uh, you talking about everything there? I can still hear the music. Lady of Spain, I adore you. You know, <laughs> I can still hear that music because I attended that circus almost every day because. They were in Mannheim when I met them, and then they went to Heilberg, and then they went to Heilbronn, and then they went to Karlsruhe, and then they went to Stuttgart. But what happened was the guy across the road that had vehicles, he came over one day, hey, George, can you give me a pair of paratrooper boots? I said, yeah, sure. Can you give me a Jeep? Just kidding. He said, sure. So he gave me a Jeep that was almost my undoing, and I'll tell you that a little bit later. Um, what happened is 
there was this beautiful girl on a fine trapeze with a sister and another girl. And when the show ended, uh, I went back to my base. But I decided to go back again the next day. So I went back the next day. And when she was finished, I was down there waiting, like what they call them, Johnny come lately's or whatever, stage door Johnny's or whatever they called them, the guys that were at the, the stage doors or to see celebrities. Anyway, this girl, by the way, was a celebrity in Germany in the circus is doing what she was doing. You're a celebrity here in the US, you're just a circus gal. But uh, I found that out later. But I'm getting ahead of my story. Okay, All right, so, so, so you're so going happened? to a circus, second day. So what happened? The second day I went to the circus, I waited for it to come out, the exit, and there were other guys there waiting for her also. It was a scramble between who was going <laughs> to get to meet this girl. But she just kept going. She didn't stop. So I followed her. I followed her to her trailer, which was her dressing room. And also she lived there, that trailer, while she was there. And so I followed her, and uh, she uh, accepted me to come in to the trailer. She gave me some wheat bread with lard spread on it. They didn't have butter. And, uh, and that's how we got acquainted. Now, did I speak German? No. Did she speak English? No. But... Where there's a will, there's a way. You heard that expression. Yes, I've heard that. Okay. So anyway, I don't know how the hell we communicated, but we did. In fact, we communicated so well that I took the song, You Are My Sunshine, and I got the German words for the song, and I used to sing her that song in German. Wow. Du bist mein Sonnenschein, mein einer Sonnenschein. Du magst mich ja klisch, when the Himmel is grau. Du dich verstehe lieber, wie viel ich liebe dich. Bitte dein Max, mein Sonnenschein, weg. Okay? I did that a few other, I did that in Hawaii. That's a long story. If you want to hear about it, I'll tell you that story because it's a funny, that is a funny story. I went over for Pearl Harbor with a bunch of Pearl Harbor vets and on American Airlines and Gary Sinise. And then I got acquainted with the captain and the co-captain who was a female. And we did the town while we were while we were there. And we ended up in the in a pub. And then I sang that song there. And I'll tell you later what happened. There's a bunch of people drinking beer. I never got up in public and sang in my life. But I saw this other guy who was a mayor, ex-mayor uh, of uh, Oahu. And I listened to him saying, and I thought, you know what? I can do that. After a couple of beers, I, I went up there and did it. <laughs> anyway, that's another story that's really funny. I can't wait to hear that. But here we are. We're back in Germany. Does this Very girl have a name? Her name was Margot. Margot. M-A-R-G-O-T. And I called her Margie. And I stenciled her name on the bumper of my Jeep. And, and I followed her around Germany. All those towns I told you about a little while ago. And, uh, and on so, your days uh, off, I mean, you only had every other day off. How did you do that? That's, well, because when I was through for the day, then then I I uh, I didn't take her to those places. I just met her there. Okay, but then <laughs> I did take her uh, from Frankfurt 
to her home, I mean, Stuttgart, to her home in Frankfurt. And I'll just tell you about that. Because what happened is we're, we're driving through the rain. And I've got my poncho on her. And the top is up in my Jeep, my Jeep. And so we got stopped at a, at a checkpoint by the MPs. And you couldn't carry civilians unless you had special paper, which I didn't have. And I did everything on my own, getting gasoline, getting trip tickets and everything. I just did everything myself. I was really into it. Industrious. You know, well, there's a will, there's a way. And I did it all. And so we got stopped. Wanted to know where the papers were. And so like, oh yeah, I got tape. You know, she's a performer in the in the circus, American services. I started going through my clothing, you know, a little bit at a time. He's getting really wet. I mean, it was pouring. He said, okay, go ahead. So I got out of that deal. <laughs> what would have happened if he if he didn't have the papers? What would have happened then? Well, I don't know, but nothing good. I'll tell you what almost happened. <laughs> because later, a few of the guys in my company wanted to borrow my Jeep. And I used to lock it up with a chain. When I'd come in at night, I mean, in the excuse me, not in the night, in the morning, in a hurry to you know to get the roll call, and so I didn't lock it up that one one day. They took it out, got drunk, got in an accident. Next thing I know, they're towing the jeep into the yard where we were in Mannheim. And uh, by the way, I was in Mannheim when when Patton was killed in that accident. Mm. an accident. But anyway, uh, so. Uh, these guys came to me, hey, George, you know, company commander wants to know where we got the Jeep. And uh, he says, you know, you've got to help us out on this. And so I did. And so the three How of did us, you help them out? By going with them to see the company commander that next day. Okay, so I did. We saw the company commander, wanted to know where I got the Jeep. He told me the seriousness of stolen military equipment. I said, sir, I didn't steal it. I just, I just borrowed it. Well, that didn't go over very well. But anyway, uh, he, he said, uh, I, I've got to think about this overnight. I want you guys to come back in. We went back in the next day. He already knew what I had done in the war and how old I was. And so he said, after the all the chewing out and I could end up in 11 words for what I did and everything. So then he said, you know what? I'm going to look the other way. Sterling Carpenter was his name. I'm sure he's up in heaven a long time ago. But but you know what? I got out of that one. And, wow. Sounds yeah, like so, Sterling Carpenter was a good man. Oh, yeah, he was. He was a, he was a lieutenant in, in charge of all of us that were there. In, in that, uh, we were in a building there in Mannheim too. We got finally got in a building there, uh, and sleeping on cots. So, so you know, when when I think about it, because my sisters, uh, when I got home, said that they heard me uh, I had nightmares, and I don't remember a nightmare ever, ever, and. Uh, but they heard it some nightmare. But you know, I don't. I have thought about it a lot. You know, what I think about it sometimes is 
when I'm going to bed or uh, wake up in the morning. Uh, I used to think about it a lot. I still do. I still think about it uh, because I'm getting older now, I guess. And uh, as I get older, I, I think about things that I kind of just brushed off before. But I don't let it bother me to the extent where I hit PTSD. A lot of people think, how do I escape PTSD? I don't know. I don't, even know. I don't know how I escape that either. Uh, maybe that's why they call me the crazy GI, but I don't know. Um, I, I'm sure that most of these guys with PTSD uh, is legitimate. And I hope there aren't some worth phony, but I know one guy that didn't, he didn't get PTSD until he was 66 years old and he gets a full pension now. And uh, well, and can I postulate, can I ask you this? You seem to be okay talking about a lot of really hard things. And of course I have a son in the military and I've known a lot of other guys that have fought more recently. And many of them don't like talking about their war experiences at all. And I, Remember hearing from a lot of other GIs, they, you know, and I've talked to a lot of people who had fathers who were in World War II, and they refused to talk about any of it because it was so traumatic. I'm wondering if it was helpful for you to talk about your stories. If it was helpful? Right. Uh, you know, I had a chance to go back for the 40th anniversary when Reagan was president. And I didn't go back until 10 years later when Clinton was president and had all expenses paid for me. And of course, not my wife, because she had died in 1981. And I raised my kids for 10 years. And then I met Dottie that I'm married to now in uh, 1991, uh, which was 10 years after my wife died. And so I went through all of that alone. And so they talked me into going back in the 50th. And, and so I think I told you about walking through the cemetery in Normandy and, and looking at the graves. I went walking by myself and, and it was very traumatic, wondering, did I handle this particular body? And then, and then when I got looking at the, the marble monuments and, and seeing that there was no date of birth, I, I, I went crazy. I mean, I walked back to my kids and, and Dottie was my fiance then. We weren't married yet. In 19, this is 1994. We got married in 96. But anyway, uh, I told him, I said, look, you guys don't know this. You don't know how old any particular soldier was that's buried here. I do. I, I know I know a lot of them, 18, 19, and 20. But uh, I'm upset because people visiting the cemetery have no idea who that soldier is unless they go to Holland now. And now they have pictures of a lot of these guys at the grave sites because there are people over there that do websites and they, they, they research the soldier. And I have adopted a grave there myself of a Jewish fellow who happened to be my age. Now, I'm not Jewish, I'm Italian, but, but this fellow, a, a friend of mine in the Netherlands, you may know Ralph Peters. You know Ralph Peters? I know of his name, but I don't know him personally. Okay, well, he adopts a lot of graves. And so he was with me. We were doing a film they will never forget at that cemetery. And we were walking out, and it was windy and starting to rain. And I said, my God, you know what? Uh, we, uh, uh, we haven't 
had any of these adopters because what we did is a film about people there who adopt graves of American soldiers they never knew except as their liver. They put flowers on those graves from time to time. Well, when we started to go out, I said, you know what? None of my adopters have adopted a Jewish grave. And I, I want to adopt one. So go in the office. Here's, here's a name of a lieutenant in Massachusetts where I'm from. Check it out. Checked it out. The guy had an adopter. Go back. Here's another one. Uh, Albert Schley. Go and check on him. And so he checks on him. And he said, no one has adopted this grave. They say, okay, I am. I can't be here to do flowers. He said, I'll do it. So we co-adopted. You get a certificate from the adoption agency, and uh, which I have. And uh, you know, I could even show it to you here. But, uh, but anyway, uh, he, he goes there from time to time, puts flowers, and he sends me pictures. Mm. He sends me pictures. Ralph is an unusual guy. I've known him since he was a young teenager mm. <clears throat> when I did that film. So anyway... <clears throat> Uh, in that summer, there's also four black soldiers who were part of 11 guys of, of uh, We're With 11. I think I told you about that before. Yeah, last week. Yeah, that's about the uh, uh, 11 black soldiers who were massacred by the German Nazis, uh, SS troopers. Anyway, um, yeah, that I think I told you that story, so I won't do that again. But anyway, uh, getting back to where I was, um, I don't know why I got uh, L, what the hell was it, LSTD or something, LSTD? PTSD. PTSD. Yeah. Uh, uh, because a lot of people think I should have, especially after they hear my stories, especially after they see my DVDs, especially the first two where I took young high school history teachers uh, on those two films. But anyway, let me get back to what I'm talking about. So, so, uh, Two weeks after that excursion I had, almost getting court-martialed, uh, uh, I was uh, sent with others to Bremerhaven, which is a port in Germany, to go home. So we were at that port, and uh, we were hoping to get home for Christmas. So here it was December 19th. The only way we are going to get home for Christmas is on a Queen Mary fat chance of getting into Queen Mary. And so everybody went AWOL. Everybody. Guess what I did? What? When the war was over, you still had to carry your rifle. So I had my rifle, my uniform, overcoat. It was pretty cold. This in December. I got on a train. And uh, I think I was the only one. I remember looking out the window. I think I was standing up. I can see me standing up looking out the window. But I, I don't know if there's anybody else in that car or not. But I went 350 miles to Frankfurt, Germany. Why? That's where Margot lived. <laughs> and her father had been a prisoner of war. And he was the same size as I was, a little guy. And so I wore his overcoat. Uh, to, I took Margot to a movie. It was an American movie. And... Uh, they had the German subtitles. We walked through this bar as we were going through the movie, and these German guys were sitting at the bar, and they all turned their heads and looked at her, and she said, she grumbled something in German to them. And, uh, and, and uh, off we went. So I stayed with them for Christmas, Christmas dinner, for a couple of days. And then 
after that, uh, I had to go back. And so uh, we, as I recall, we were in a telephone booth, but when I did my memoirs, I said we were standing against the building. So we were either standing against the building. I, I envision us in, in a telephone booth, just looking at each other face to face, waiting for the train with tears. And the, and the train came and I walked backwards toward the train waving to her mm. until I got on the train. It, it was a sad, emotional time. I often thought if there was a movie, that, that would have been the climax of the movie. But uh, did I see her again? People ask me. <laughs> yeah, I did see her again. Did I tell you that? No, you Actually, didn't. But if I may, uh, just for time's sake, and I like a good cliffhanger because I want, I think we should leave on that note so our listening audience can hear, when did you see Margo again? I saw, yeah. Don't tell don't, us. Don't, don't tell, tell us. us. Don't tell don't us. Tell we're here on the next, the next recording. So yes, the be- next episode. We're going to leave our audience wanting more, George, because we want to hear when you saw Margo next, and we want to hear more about your filmmaking career next week. Will you come back next week? Yeah, what's the date next week? So next week. June 3rd. June 3rd. Okay. Yeah, because I got a birthday coming up uh, here. What is your birthday? Sorry, sorry. June 16th. Okay, next week is June 2nd. So we'll try to get you to come back next week, if you will. Okay. All right, and then we'll hear about when you saw Margo next. Uh, we'll get another film update, and then we'll hear about how you uh, became a filmmaker at age 81. So folks, uh, thank you so much for listening to George, and we do hope you'll come back next week to hear the rest of his story. I mean, did you like that, Josh? Yeah, I can't wait. This is these okay, are, this I is can't great. wait either. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, I can't wait to hear what happened to Margo. So, um, well, yeah. George, Thank you for for being here and thank you for coming back next week. Christian, congratulations again on another win and the big distribution release. So very excited about all that. And also to our listening audience, thank you for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you so much for listening, for donating, and for following along on our journey. If you are able to make a donation this week, we would really appreciate it. We are supported by donors who give us $100 or less, so anything helps. Also, if you're able to share the news about the girl who wore freedom with your friends and family, please do that on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email. And sign up for our newsletter at thegirlwhowarefreedom.com. Please go to thegirlwhowarefreedom.com slash donate to make a donation today.